Larry Walters might not be a name that you recall right off the top of your head, but in 1982 he made national news. And in just a few minutes, I think he'll be a name that you'll not soon forget. Because he did something on the 2nd of July in 1982 that is, well, at the very least, memorable. Larry Walters was a truck driver, but he'd always wanted another occupation. He'd always wanted to be a pilot. He even signed up to be a pilot in the United States Air Force, but his eyesight was so poor that he was disqualified. But he never lost the dream. And one day, he decided that he knew what he would do. He was going to make his own hot air balloon. And he was going to uh, construct this out of weather balloons attached to a lawn chair. And he was going to float about 30 feet above uh, his neighborhood in Southern California and look over his, his uh, neighborhood for a while. And then he was going to come back down and, and celebrate Fourth of July at a picnic with his friends. So he went to the Army surplus store and bought the weather balloons. He forged a, a, a requisition from one of the companies he hauled for and went and bought helium. Tied his lawn chair to the bumper of his Jeep, filled these, uh, these hot air balloons um, with helium, or these, uh, these weather balloons with helium. Forty-five of them he attached to his lawn chair. He got in it and he sent his girlfriend to get his supplies, a few sandwiches, uh, his, his trusty daisy pellet gun, and a six-pack of Miller Lite. <laughs> Strapped himself in with, a, with, a, uh, with a, uh, a parachute on his back, sitting on this lawn chair, asked his friends to cut the, the, the tethers. They did, cut one, they cut two, they got down to the last one, and his friend sliced it with a knife, and Larry took off. Only he didn't glide gently to 30 feet, okay? He took off like a rocket. And went past the 30 feet, went past the 100 feet mark, he went past the 1,000 feet above sea level mark, and continued going very quickly. He passed the 5,000 feet level, he went past 10,000 feet above sea level, and leveled off at 15,000 feet. That's way up there. Larry was terrified. His plan was to shoot out a balloon or two and let him come down, you know, when he was ready. But now he was so high up above, he was afraid that if he shot out a balloon, that, that the, the seat might tip and he might fall out. And so he was terrified. And things got worse. At 15,000 feet, he was at the mercy of the wind, which blew him into federal airspace over LAX airport. And a 747 coming inbound to LAX... Radio to the tower, there's a man up here in a lawn chair. <laughs> this is probably where they started investigating pilots for drinking. And they, uh, it sounded like you said that there was a man up there in a lawn chair. There is. He has weather balloons tied to a lawn chair. And so quickly they scrambled to rescue plane helicopters and everything. But, but Larry mustered up some courage. And he shot out a balloon. And he was okay. And he shot out a second and a third, and he was still okay. And the, and the lawn chair began to descend slowly. And he went to shoot out a fourth one, but he lost his balance. And he grip, grip, reached to grab hold of his, you know, the chair. And in so doing, dropped his daisy pellet rifle from his seat that plummeted to the ground. And who knows where that landed. But eventually, the, the chair started to come down. It started to come down and down and down. And wouldn't you know it, as he was about to land, he headed right into the electrical wires. Took out a couple of electrical wires, nearly killed himself in that event, but also managed to make a blackout in Long Beach, California. And there was the rescue squad waiting to cut him down. 
And right behind them, the Long Beach Police Department to arrest him and place him in the custody. There was a reporter who was on the scene, asked Aunt Larry the question, tell us, why did you do it? His answer is priceless. He said, a guy just can't sit around. <laughs> you know, I don't really wonder what he thought as he was shooting up past the 5,000 feet mark, because I have an idea as to what he was saying, and it's probably not something that you could say in polite company. But I do know that eventually he had this thought. This must have been the stupidest idea I've ever had. I mean, how could I have been so dumb? And you know what? You maybe have never done something so daring and so stupid as Larry did. But I'm guessing you've done something along the way that was really sort of moronic. You know, it was kind of that really dumb decision you made. And no, I haven't talked to your parents. Yes, I actually have. But I, I know that you've made decisions. You've made poor decisions. I know that because I've made poor decisions. And no, you're not getting a sampling of them this morning. You have to talk to my mom. We all make, we all make foolish decisions, don't we? Every one of us. We just hope that if we survive these dumb decisions, that maybe we gained a little bit of sagacity so that next time, I always want to use the word sagacity in a sense, so the next time we can have a little bit of wisdom. We can make good choices. <coughs> I think the gospel forces us to make a choice today. It forces us to make a decision. You know the story, don't you? Pontius Pilate has crucified Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was viewed as a threat both to the, um, the Jewish religious establishment as well as the Roman civil establishment. And so upon a Roman cross, Jesus was, uh, was executed. Just days before the story that, was read, that, was, um, that uh, Sarah read just a few moments ago, Jesus died completely dead. Not as in the Princess Bride, almost dead, but completely dead, actually dead, fully dead. This means no heart beating, no lungs operating, brain ceasing to function. Jesus died in about the year 26 AD. And that's when the story gets a little bit complicated here, doesn't it? Because very early on the first day of the week, some women go to his grave. See, in our categories, we have categories for people. They're alive or they're dead. Um, sometimes we try to forge categories that kind of fit in the middle, or, or maybe we even talk about people who have been resuscitated. They were dead and, and now they're back alive. My, own, my uncle, um, uh, when I was just a boy, I remember he was a, a volunteer paramedic. A call went out, a 911 call, that a, a young boy had, had fallen into the pool, hit his head. He, he had been to the bottom and, and they pulled him out. He was unresponsive, had no pulse, um, and, and, and they feared the worst. And my uncle arrived first on the scene and began CPR, revived the boy. And um, he was able to go home from the hospital just a couple of days after that. People have been resuscitated. That's not the story here. No one is saying Jesus had a really bad day on the cross, but somehow through the ICU ward was able to come out on it. No, not like that at all. He had been dead and he was resurrected never to die again. That's a pretty fantastic story. It gets a little bit more interesting because the person who tells it, Matthew here, or if you were reading Mark, Luke, or John, none of them were actually there to witness the empty tomb. All of them received this story secondhand from the women who were present. 
Now, I do not endorse this opinion, but in the first century, women were not viewed as credible witnesses. Women were not allowed to testify in court. And this was both in, in Jewish sensibilities as well as Gentiles. The Romans would not allow women to testify in court. They were not viewed to be believable. So I want you to think about something. Suppose you were making up this story. Suppose this was a concocted story. You wanted to revive a religious movement that had kind of faltered. Is this the way you would make it up? Not at all. In fact, this is the worst way to make up the story. Sure, you might use some supernatural stuff to kind of conjure up some imagery, but you certainly wouldn't have women being the first witnesses. Supernatural, yes, but you need somebody with real credibility. In fact, Matthew says later on, there were people who didn't like Jesus, and they concocted another story. His body was stolen at night by his disciples. Two stories going on in Israel today. One, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Second story, Jesus' body was stolen by his disciples in order to conjure up this story. So today, you and I are faced with a choice, with a question. Which story are we going to believe? Which one's more logical? Are you going to believe the story about Jesus resurrecting? Or are you going to believe the story that maybe his body was stolen in order to make up the story that Jesus had resurrected? And you're saying to yourself, Hello, I'm here. <laughs> right? I'm in church after all. I got up early this morning, got dressed. You all look very nice, by the way. And I got to church and, and I'm here. Doesn't that say a lot? Well, yes. And no. You see, the church can be a really nice club. I mean, we get nice people. Free coffee. You know, um, it's a good place to go. Great music. It's a wonderful Sunday morning. You don't have to be a believer to show up in church. In fact, coming to church makes, no more makes you a believer than going to a farm makes you a cow. You know, it doesn't really make uh, that, that, that simple one-to-one. We have to decide what we really believe. And sure, coming to church is one thing, but if we believe this resurrection story, if we really believe it, it will change how we order our lives. It will make a huge difference in the way that we order our lives. It will make the difference between whether we believe that God in Jesus Christ overcame evil and that He's still doing that today. It will change whether or not we'll be paralyzed by fear and cling to stuff and outward forms of security as if that's really what's going to make us safe or whether we're going to live with a, a kind of reckless, abandoned, joyful trust that God is really in control. That's what it's really about, isn't it? Will we believe that God is really in control of life? It brought to mind, as I was thinking about these things, a popular idiom. Maybe it's not so popular around here. Where I grew up, it was kind of popular. It's called betting the farm. Have you ever heard it? Betting the farm? It's, it's a, uh, an idiom from, um, from wagering. You know, um, I want you to suppose for just a moment I had this table up here and there are these three half coconut shells up here. You know, and I, and I lift them up and one of them has a marble under it. You know, the shell game, right? So I put these three down and, and just for the sake of argument, imagine that my hands are really fast and I move these things around like you're on the street corner in Brooklyn or something like that. And I'm moving these around and you're trying to follow and, and, and I stop and I say, now do you know which one the marble's under? And you, thinking that you're rather clever, say, yes, I do. And I say to you, well, then let's make a bet. Five dollars? You sure? 
$10? Are you really sure? $100? Would you bet everything that you know which one it's under? Would you bet the farm? You see, it's about confidence, isn't it? It's about the level of confidence that you have in the choice that you're about to make. I'm guessing you're already way ahead of me here. But just for the sake of finishing this thing out, let me take this to its conclusion. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus is a costly decision. It is a costly decision. It will cost you everything. If you're going to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you have to be willing to bet the farm that you're right. Because if it's right, well, it means everything to you. You see, this is a decision about whether or not you're going to believe in the resurrection of Jesus that changes everything. It changes everything. It changes everything about the way you look at life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.